Hello, David here, and welcome to this week's episode of Trees A Crowd. So, I travelled down to Exeter in February to walk along the chilly spring banks of the River Teen to discuss all creatures, great, small and Devonian, with Harry Barton, the CEO of the Devon Wildlife Trust. But my microphones were cheap and we cocked that up, so I popped back a few months later to talk to them all over again, and this is that. We've also a bonus episode available this week, all about Devon's beaver population, so head across to our website for that and much, much more. So without further ado, this, my friends, is Harry Barton of the Devon Wildlife Trust, Second Sticks, and this is Trees A Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw When the forest boughs were bare Oh, the oak and the ivy Oh, the oak and the ivy Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From those who cast flies to those who cast pods... I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, we find ourselves in beautiful Devon, home to Europe's oldest cinema. And that's not what it's supposed to say there. <laughs> I was going to ask you where the oldest cinema is. I'm going to go and visit it. Yeah. They've... Oh, that's not mine. There's, there's a very good one in Totnes, actually, which they've just, just done <laughs> up. And it looks like it's a building site, and that's entirely deliberate. Uh-huh. And we, we launched a film there about nine months ago, and it was uh, it was a great place. You feel like you're going back in time, but you feel like you're in a you're in one that is kind of um, is in the middle either of being renovated or falling apart. But it's sure. a fantastic environment. It's so completely different from a modern cinema. Was this where you launched the Wilder Future campaign thing? No, that's at a different place. That actually was an, another place well worth visiting called the, the Devon and Exeter Institution, which sounds like where you go if you've if you've done something truly um, unacceptable to society. But uh, but no, that's that's just like an old uh, an old um, library of and the whole place smells of the dust of old libraries. It's great. But this is Totnes Cinema. And that's where we launched a film about a project called just called the South South Avon Project. Avon's one of the rivers we've got here. Okay, um, but because uh, Avon's but, everywhere, it's a Saxon yeah. word, isn't it? Yeah, it just means river, basically. Yeah. The river, yeah. river, cracking naming there. It's like Abba is in the same in in Welsh. Sure. Oh, as in okay. Do you have Abba this Abba that? Nothing to do with the band. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, what was that project about in particular? The uh, the River Avon one. So this is a project. Uh, so the river, the river Avon is a really interesting river, actually. So it's a typ- typical of, of a South Devon river. So it starts up uh, about fifteen hundred feet up on Dartmoor, mm-hmm. and within twenty five miles, it ends up in the sea. And if you think about that, if you think of the Thames, so it's a huge shift. It's a huge shift. Yeah. So so that's that. Uh, if you look at the Thames, that starts about five hundred feet above sea level, and two hundred miles later, it hits the sea. So it's a much much. You know, that's a gradient of that compared to a gradient of that. Sure. So you see all these different different types of habitat along the course of the River Raven. It's a very beautiful river. Does it mean well. there's less diversity if it's running faster? No, it means it's all more condensed, basically, okay. in space and time. Uh, so things change very rapidly. Uh, and it's like, again, like a lot of Devon rivers, it's cut itself some quite deep gorges in places which mm-hmm. means there's some really interesting fragments of habitat left but they are very much fragments so this project is trying to get stitching back together again and uh, rely on local landowners to do it and what's different for this project and so many others that we're working on is that we're actually relying just on the goodwill of the landowners there aren't any financial incentives uh, it's really just saying do you want to do this do you want to be part of an exciting project to recreate this landscape and it's amazing how many people are saying yes Environmental philanthropy. Yeah, if we exactly. Get more of that, the world would be a much better place. It would. Um, George Monbiot was on the radio on the way down talking about trying to diversify the nature of our environment, moving away from animal-based agriculture into plant-based agriculture, and through doing that and having wilder spaces, making a world in which the carbon footprint is reduced, uh, diversity is raised. But he seems to suggest that we need to have a certain philanthropic edge to try and do that people want to make the world better yes i think i think money 
is important, obviously, and some a lot of things aren't going to happen um, without money. And if we want to get the really big corporations around, we have to give them some sort of an incentive. But then you look at what's happening at the moment. You look at Greta Thunberg and you look at uh, um, Extinction Rebellion. You see how the public perception of the natural environment has changed so radically from, say, five years ago when you heard ministers say things like charities should stick to their knitting, literally. Sure. Um, and that's Did they say that? Yeah, yeah. A minister's on the record saying that. Charities. I show a slide sometimes. Um, so it's, it's uh, this fundamental change that we've seen. And really, it's just down to people pressure. And it's re- you, some people say it's due to blue, blue planet. Um, I don't know what it's due to, but some, in some amazing way, all these things have come together. Something bubbling up. Something bubbling up. And all of a sudden, um, you know, governments, big corporations are now starting to say, oh, gosh, we've got to do this because people expect it of us. Mm-hmm. And that's really just people pressure. That's enough people saying we think this is important. And often it's just a little swing is all it takes. And um, and you flip to a completely different state. And I mean, I was looking this morning on uh, just doing some research, and and I had to look at the BBC website, and uh-huh. the number of references to environmental things is huge. And even two years ago, that wouldn't have been there. Yeah, you you. I mean, listening to the radio on the drive down this morning, I was thinking back to try and remember if environmentalism was always this front and center. As someone who's always had a particular desire to look at it, I've always thought that it was. But you don't have to go looking for it quite so much. I mean, there wouldn't be this podcast if there wasn't something mm. suggesting there was a reason to do it, I guess. I'm a product of this miasma of bubbles. I'm probably going to leave all this in. I'm going to put it on the record. For the record, I'm back down in Devon again to, to re-record this interview because basically I mucked it up last time. <laughs> so Harry's being very nice um, for letting me do it. So, Which is why, one of, the, one of the many reasons why I got the introduction wrong. So for those of you wondering who I'm talking to, I'm going to do the introduction again. Um, and you've had a good insight already to, to the wonderful Harry Barton. So in this episode, we're down in Devon, home to the oldest cinema, apparently, to talk to the chief executive of the Devon Wildlife Trust, Harry Barton. He's worked for nearly 25 years in the environmental sector, including spells at the Council for National Parks, Kew Gardens and the Wiltshire Wildlife Trust. And before his time in Devon, he was the chief executive of the Earth Trust in Oxfordshire. Harry, hello again. Hello. Again. Again, and welcome back to Trees of Grass. I enjoy doing it the first time. I enjoy it even more the second time. <laughs> they're coming back. They're flocking. Let's just continue where we're going. Extinction Rebellion is something that's happened since I last spoke to you. We are now on the 29th of April. I spoke to you on the uh, 7th of February, I think it was. And I, I was looking it up Extinction Rebellion. We'll talk about the Devon Wildlife Trust, obviously. But I was looking them up and they, they were sort of formed from a different a group of different groups that all came together at the end of last year. And over the last week or two, bubbling up, I think, from public consciousness from, from Greta, who you mentioned with her sort of Scandinavian city, yes. tried similar kind of things in London. They had a die-in in the Natural History Museum yes. in, in the Hinsey Hall. They all lay down on the ground. Yeah. It looked awesome. Um, I wasn't there. There was... One thing I did go to was a, a sound installation on the South Bank, led by Cosmo Sheldrake, with lots of noises of birds playing from different speakers... But the electronic cost of having all those speakers going, I thought, was slightly counterproductive in terms <laughs> of pushing the environmental edge. But there, you say there's a, this grip that's sort of taken hold again. Yes, and and a few weeks ago, just outside here, outside our offices on the the big main road that heads up into the centre of Exeter, sure. um, Extinction Rebellion were there, and I was oh, okay. cycling in in the morning, and I was wondering why there's this huge hold up, and and there were Extinction Rebellion, and they were holding up the traffic for six minutes. Uh, and they were talking to people uh, in the cars while they were holding them up and explaining sure. what they were doing. Um, and then they would let the traffic run for another two minutes and they would block it again. And then after an hour or so, they moved off. So I spent some time chatting to them. And I I mean, they're bravery. Did they know that you were the CEO of the Devon Wildlife Trust? They did, because I told them. And I knew yeah, one or two people on. there. <laughs> um, no, I was just wearing my cycling kit. But but I, I stopped and I was interested and I chatted to some people there. And I, I mean, I, I think I was really struck by their bravery. Um, and I'm struck by how important it is that they aren't actually part of any formal group. Mm-hmm. You know, the question is asked, obviously, of an organisation like Devon Wildlife Trust, should you be formally part of this? And to me, it's it's 
is this a, is this a group that should sit outside the mainstream of 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 nature conservation environmentalism and i think the answer to that is yes we've all got different roles to play and they are a protest group and they do these things which are a little bit edgy like glue themselves sure. to things and get themselves arrested um but if that's what it takes to draw attention then uh, there are groups do. that need to do that well, our, our role is different do that a bit more they used to do that a little bit more. Um, they're a different kind of organisation now. We, I think, are a very different organisation because we're trying to do actual, do, do actual things on the ground to, to make that change happen. Sure. And it's harder to do that if you are seen to be too overtly aligned to what might, some people might see as a political group. But nevertheless, uh, I think there's room for all these different groups here to do their different roles. Before I go into your roles within the local society as the Devon Wildlife Trust, do you think... Do you think it's an ideological thing? I mean, I remember being young and having huge ideas that were unrestrained by pragmatism and reality. I think as organisations get bigger or older, even uh, looking at Greenpeace, they've sort of calmed down a bit, but they've become more establishment, but their voice is very clear and well-defined. The Wildlife Trust has been around since the 19... First one was set up in the 1920s. 1920s. So do you find that that sort of sense of understanding of, of time, space and reality means you, you, the ideology gets pulled back a bit? I think uh, you have so many different things need to be done. So uh, if we're going to solve this environmental crisis, we need people to stand up and shout and say, I care, and I mm-hmm. care so much about this that I'm going to put this in front of my day-to-day life and convenience, uh, perhaps even my personal freedom, all these things. And if you look at any great movement and any change, whether it's the suffragettes or people overthrowing a dictator, sure. um, you've had people who've who've done that. Um, then I think you need groups of people who say, uh, we think this is incredibly important, but we see our role as to do practical things on the ground to try and make things better. So that might be... Um, providing homes for people it might be providing space for wildlife it might be providing um, evidence science all these different Mm. things so that's where I think the wildlife trust sits but nevertheless we do still have a role and should have a role in trying to change things for the better we try and work within the system so we say okay here's the Houses of Parliament here's Westminster here are the civil servants here are the laws and we will try our best to influence those laws um, laws which think, are changing. Laws well. which are changing. There were big countryside laws that changed earlier last week. Exactly. And we're in, there never has been a time since the Second World War where so much law, particularly environmental law, but so much law is up in the air. Uh, I mean, I, I, if I give a list of all the laws that are changing at the moment, um, A, it will become boring and B, I'll forget <laughs> something. There's just so much, it's mind-boggling. But I think it's really important that you have these groups which also operate outside all of that and say, you know, to help with all that, we are just going to talk about how much we care about this. And we're not concerned with organisations or livelihoods or laws or processes or governance structures. We are here just to stand up and shout and say how important that is. this is. And that is the role of Extinction Rebellion. And I think it's a really important one. Hmm. So, Devon, there you go. We've done the world. Let's done the world. Devon. Devon's a large county. It Very is. Diverse. Fourth, fourth biggest in um, in England. Yeah. Not, not the only one's counting. <laughs> um, what are the wonderful, unique challenges about Devon in particular? Uh, well, Devon is fantastic in so many ways. We've got two coasts. I think we're right, I'm right in saying we're the only county that has two coasts. Of course, Cornwall's got one long one, which goes all the way around. But we've got two divided ones, a north one and a south one. And they're so That's different. Been really cruel to Cornwall. Oh, well. <laughs> I love Cornwall. But we got two coasts, which is great. Uh, we got our two national parks. Um, it's a it's a very it's obviously it's a very great Dartmoor and, and Exmoor. Um, and and one of the things I think is often forgotten about with Devon is its amazing rivers. So we've got twenty two rivers which arise on Dartmoor alone, mm-hmm. and they all rise in Devon. They all meet the sea in Devon. And a number of them, particularly in their upper reaches, are very very unaltered. Because if you look at most of the rivers across the Lowland UK, uh, they are very modified and have been for centuries and centuries. Uh, you can go across Dartmoor and parts of Exmoor and you can see rivers that look very much like what they would have done maybe a thousand years ago, albeit their courses change with natural erosion. Is that just because 
of the population size, the nature of the roadways and how people don't come down? Why is that, that they've been left to their own devices? Well, I think it's partly a function of the landform because you're looking at uh, at land which, if if it's a river that cuts its way deep into granite, Mm. it's actually quite hard to shift it. it. Uh, Whereas you're looking at lowland England, these are rivers which naturally would have spilled out, changed their courses, flooded Mm. uh, farmland on quite a regular basis. And of course, a lot of people living there very close to the river. So controlling that river's flow... And harnessing its power for irrigation or whatever um, was was much more of a pressing challenge to people. Sure. Um, your role as the Wildlife Trust is to preserve and to protect? Preserve and to protect, but also to enhance mm-hmm. um, and to, to increase our understanding of it and also try and, and encourage many more people to engage with it. And people can to engage with it in a very practical sense. You know, they can go out and help volunteering on a reserve or visit, walk their dog, whatever they like to do. Sure. Um, but you can also engage on it, uh, engage in it in schools, uh, in writing to your MPs, in in art, in any in, in any number of different ways. And uh, what you know, if if there has been or if there is uh, a crisis in our environment in terms of species being lost and lost and rainforest disappearing, which undoubtedly there is, mm-hmm. there is also a crisis which goes hand in hand with this, with in terms of our dislocation from the natural environment. So that's been manifest in schools and our day-to-day job. I mean, you were just describing to me how you drove all the way down here. I drove in this morning. I usually cycle, but I drove in this morning. You know, how much of our our life do we spend inside in the city? I look out of the window here, how much wildlife do we see? And how much of of our day-to-day life is spent in front of a computer? And all this is part of that dislocation that affects all of us. It's, I mean, I've been travelling all over the country this last week, for various reasons, I was up in Newcastle at the beginning of last week talking to um, a sound recorder called Chris Watson, and then spent a few days in the Lake District, and now I'm down in Devon, I've been in London as well. Uh, I have a bad carbon footprint, it's, <laughs> I'm not proud of it. It's hard It's hard not to. It's a very little car with a very little engine, in my defence. Um, <laughs> it's also a very dirty car at the moment, but we won't go into that. I, I've been seeing a lot of the countryside, and I've been really enjoying the diversity of it, especially at this time with the lambs coming out and comparing the Cumbrian yes. lambs to the Devonian lambs has been really mm. huge. I think I've been blessed, although in a car, have been confronted by nature so much over the last few days because of the, the rapid amount of movement that I sort of I don't take it for granted, which is lovely, but it does make me frustrated that I have to be in the car. I guess one of the things I've been fascinated by recently is seeing how the different wildlife trusts have the different kinds of challenges that they face. So the Lake District, they have a huge amount of tourism going in. Access to land through walkers, especially at Easter time, is pretty hard work for the sheep, I would imagine. How do you... What are the unique challenges that face Devon? Well, I... I'm not sure there are any challenges that are unique to Devon, but there are some which we are particularly focused on here. So I think built, built development is always going to be one, and that affects every county. But you see cities like De- uh, Exeter growing very fast. So Exeter is now one of the fastest growing cities in the UK. That's not necessarily a bad thing in itself. Now, that sure. might sound a strange thing to say, but personally, I believe that people do need houses to live in. We do, you know, that we do have a housing shortage and, and we want decent quality housing for people. I think the challenge to us should be not whether we build houses, it's how we build them. And can we build houses and communities which provide green space, which are safe, they're beautiful, they enable people to experience wildlife and all the wonders around them. Uh I think that's perfectly possible. And you can have ecologically, you know, eco-houses as well, which are very good in their use of electricity and water and resources. All that stuff, I think, is we're more than capable of doing it. It just requires the will to do so. And that comes, I guess initially from financial incentive and then hopefully legislation afterwards is that the way it has to go i, I think it, i think you need you need the financial incentive but the the first the first thing i think is you need people saying this is what we want uh-huh. second thing is we need government to say yes if people don't have the money or freedom to say that they want that then they have to take what they can afford no i think what we what i mean by that is is that you need the populace out there saying we need to build greener we need the government and builders to recognise that it's not just about building as many as possible for as little as possible. Sure. We need to build greener, just like we need to produce our energy greener. I think that's the first thing, and that's starting to happen now. I think the second thing is you need government to legislate, and that's important because without it, uh, there is no level playing field. So why would um, this house builder over here mm-hmm. uh, build something at higher cost to itself, as it would see it, than its competitor over here? And, and disadvantage itself so you need that level playing field which lifts everyone up so and then on top of that you need 
uh, house builders who are saying, yes, we want to just not com- want not just comply with the law. We want to do something better. We sure. want our housing development to be the, the most beautiful, the most outstanding, the greenest that anyone has seen. And we want to raise that bar. And you can see that happening. Um, I mean, you know, car manufacturers do that with their cars. So uh-huh. they always want the better, the greener, the, the more spacious, the more technologically clever. Why can't we do that with, with the greenness of build and so many other things? And cars, while we're talking about cars. So that, I mean, so that's one thing. I think another... And, big... and you as a trust, you've been going in to talk to these people. I remember you were saying last time you advised uh, larger projects on how they can be more... Yes, we do. ...footprint in the area. Yes, yes, we do. And I think what the, the legal conversation for a wildlife trust uh, is always a difficult one because uh, the way to make friends with someone initially isn't to come in and start wagging your finger at them. The, sure. the way to make friends is There's to... badger set there. Uh, exactly. Is, is, is to try and say, look, why can't we do something better and excite them about a vision? So that's perhaps more the role we play. But I mean, other big challenges for Devon, we've got the upland sea of Exmoor, and particularly Dartmoor, the whole of Dartmoor is in uh, is in Devon. And it's a lovely area. I was up there running last night, but there is a lot of grazing pressure. Mm. Uh, the soils are much thinner than they have been in the past. A lot of the peatland has been lost. Sure. Uh, there's, you know, it, it's not in the condition that it could be. Lost just through erosion or? Lost, lost to centuries of heavy grazing, burning and natural desiccation in some ways and, and climate change. Uh-huh. And of course, we pumped enormous amounts of nitrogen and, and phosphorus into our systems as well. For agriculture. So for, for, for agriculture and other purposes. So um, it's an environment that is, is, is a beautiful environment, but it's nowhere near functioning at the level that we would like it to. How... A lot of what happened last week with the new legislation about killing uh, pest birds or not killing pest birds and the manner in which it hit the news. I think Chris Packham had some dead crows hung up on his gate. Yes, he did. He was working for Wild Justice to try and get the the new legislation go through with Tony Juniper at the head of Natural England now. And how? I guess my question is, how angry is this quiet war between environmentalists and the agriculture sector and I would imagine as the Devon Wildlife Trust you're sort of trying to get both sides to see that it's a slower journey it's it's everyone should everyone is supported by the end goal of a more balanced environment or social agenda yeah I mean I would say it's complex as these things always are so there are areas where uh, the sectors are working together well and there are areas where it's difficult. And one of the reasons it's difficult at the moment is that you've got agriculture as an industry is not having an easy time of it. Mm-hmm. Um, us leaving the EU is a big part of that and all the uncertainties around subsidies and legislation uh, and all the competition that's already there from, from big international operations. And then, of course, you have the, the things that I've just been talking about in Dartmoor. From sure. an environmentalist point of view, you say, well, things aren't the way they ought to be. And we have a system that has been not only tolerating, but actually subsidising, financially rewarding many of the kind of activities that I would argue contribute to this in the first place. Sure. So um, many areas of difficulty come up as a result of that, and particularly around legislation. Is, is the environmental concern too big a concern? Then? Is the time frame at which... We have to look into the future. Just too much of politicians. No, I think I think it's obviously we need the politicians to be clear and and, and and take a decision. But I think what we really need is a shared vision. We need to say, look, uh, we we can argue about ways to make farmers' lives easier or not, and conservationists' lives easier or not. But ultimately, at the moment and for the last few decades, we've had a system which has been steering farmers in one way mm-hmm. uh, and creating environmental problems in another and actually surely we need to say all right well there's all the market will always play a role in agriculture and food production and we'll always always need to eat mm-hmm. um, but if we direct our policies and subsidies in a different direction why don't we agree that we need our soils to recover we need our wildlife to recover we need up to preserve beautiful spaces because they're important for all of us you know economy aside mm-hmm. and for a hundred other different reasons um, and if the subs- if the way we reward farmers financially is not helping us to do this, then we are creating this enormous problem. I'd love to be able to go to farmers and say, well, look, this is all the help we can give you. Mm-hmm. Um, and isn't it wonderful to help create a fantastic set of habitats here up on Dartmoor and make the rivers cleaner and bring back some, uh, some of the birds and all these other things. At the moment, we can do that a little bit, sure. but there's a whole lot of other things which are pushing it in another direction. 
Um, there are some cultural issues you need to get over. So uh, there are practices which have been going on for years and years and are seen as sort of part of the cultural yeah. history of places like Dartmoor. And not all of them, I think, are entirely helpful. So Bernie, of course, is one example of that. Mm-hmm. Others may disagree with me. Is that something as the DWT you're trying to stop or you personally have? Well, we're not trying to stop it altogether, uh-huh. but I think it's about as it's like grazing and everything else. It's like the degree. So are our national parks like Dartmoor, do we say, OK, these are almost like relics of the way our landscape used to be. Mm-hmm. And for the, as far as we can remember, gorses and scrub has always been burned off. Uh, we've kept it as an open, grazed landscape. We've had lots of grazing animals here and lots of, of, of commoners here. Is that what we're trying to preserve? Sure. Or is, are we trying to create something which is an example of a really, really stunning and wildlife-rich and environmentally rich in every way, from the bits you can see to the bits you can't see, like soils, um, landscape out there. And I would say it's the latter. Sure. And then we should say, well, how can we engage with farmers and schools and tourists and everyone else so that we all help create this thing rather than that we're all trying to, you know, that, that our own individual needs are always eating against this lovely vision which we're trying to create. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching the gorse get burnt back in the New Forest growing up and finding it very strange that to create some kind of environmental society, you had to do something so ferocious. Um, And there are obviously examples in the natural world where fires help re-put nutrients back in the ground. But there are certain sort of, certain archaic principles that are existent, certainly in the New Forest, that perhaps don't necessarily push it forward in uh, in a modern changing world. And I think... I think that's what's very taxing at the moment is our modern world is changing so rapidly and the environment is something that cannot be forced to change as quickly as that. Yes, and of course there are are harsh processes that go on in nature all the time. So burning is natural, um, tree felling, disease, all these things, one animal eating another, all these things uh, are are natural and they happen. Mm -hmm. And if you look at... Uh, experiments at rewilding in places like Uspatsplassen in, in, in the Netherlands, sure. um, some of these become really quite tricky. You have animals starving to death there, and not everyone is happy with that. But of course, this would happen naturally That's in a natural, natural system. Um, if, if you get to, you know, if, if, if a population of a certain species is, let's say, out of balance with the rest, then an adjustment will be made, either by a predator increasing or by disease or by starvation or something else. So, um, and this is a difficult area for us because mm-hmm. talking about, you know, going back to nature in uh, when we're in a room like this sounds great, but there's a harsh side of it, yeah. which, we, which we have to accept. So um, we have when got used it? to, we, we've got used to dealing with some of that stuff, um, you know, as, as wolves and bears and other short-tossed elephant, elephant, if you want to go further a bit back mm-hmm. in time, um, these animals have disappeared. So we've got used to managing in their absence through things like fire and, and, and culling. Now, and that's, so I guess what I'm saying by that is that, that burning itself um, chopping down trees, all these things from time to time. It's not in itself a bad thing. I think it's a question about how much you're doing it and what you're trying to create. So sure. do we burn because burning is what we have always done on Dartmoor and everyone has a right to do it? Or do we burn because we're saying, no, actually, we are trying to manage a balance here to create a really high quality um, and beautiful natural environment and we will burn as one of the tools necessary to achieve that, but we don't just burn because we've always burnt. As a wildlife trust... You've got that juggling act to do, though. You've got to create an environment that suits everyone within the Devon boundaries and visitors to it. You would therefore need to control the entire agenda of the entire county and able to do that. So do you... You say you mentioned earlier that you're, you're getting people to write to MPs. Um, what particular things are you asking them to write to them about at the moment? Well, I think firstly, I'd say we don't try and control the entire agenda because we can't. We, we well, try and, but we, I mean, that's the point. You we, obviously can't. We, we obviously so. can't. We, we will try and influence the laws and the policies out there which will shape an overarching vision which we think will work for everyone. But we uh-huh. don't get involved in the direct delivery of it all. Sure. So we, we, will, we will get involved uh, often where we think that no one else is there uh-huh. um, or there's a niche which we're particularly well placed to fill so 
there's a type of habitat, wonderful type of habitat in Devon called Cool Grassland, which is a slightly funny one actually. You you would it, it's not immediately appear, appealing like a wildflower meadow. It, mm. It's very very tussocky. It's very wet, sort of prickly things. You take ten steps into it and you trip over something, fall flat on your face, and get wet <laughs> and muddy. Um, even at the end of long dry spells, you'll get wet in there. It's very very harsh if you like sure. as an environment but it, it's it's quite unique to devon and parts of cornwall and parts of south wales it's a very uh-huh. unusual thing and as you can imagine um a lot of it has been destroyed in the past in fact almost all of it's been destroyed in the past because people look thought, what the hell's all this what can you do with this can't yeah. and you graze a couple couple of animals of this make tuppence hate me if i'm very lucky um you know i can t- i want to turn it into something much more useful i'll you know ply the whole thing up and turn it into a, not a wheat field but you know an improved grazing pasture mm. or something else or maybe plant conifers on it so these tiny fragments left we have made it our business to to try and preserve them, buy them, look after them, preserve them because they all need management and expand them. Mm-hmm. So that's very much a Devon Wildlife Trust thing. Another Devon Wildlife Trust thing is we have worked very hard on the marine environment around here because, of course, that's just as much. Just on as both important. your coasts? Both our coasts, yes. Both our wonderful coasts. Um, and about half our wildlife here in the southwest peninsula is in our seas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unbeknown to lots of people, we get basking sharks and you get squid and rays and all sorts of dolphins and as well as the seals and the more expected things here coming to our coast. So, you know, when I lived in Wiltshire, I was a landlubber. Well, I had no idea before I came here that you get all these uh, bees come to the southwest. It's absolutely extraordinary. So, but, but the threats to our marine environment are every bit, if not worse, than the threats on land. And one of the reasons is that you can see what's going on on land. Mm-hmm. If you go outside Exeter... And you think, oh, there's a bit of forest that's all being seen to be being felled and turned into houses. People get upset very quickly. Yeah. They'll write to their local council, etc. But this stuff goes on beneath the waves. Um, and a lot of the problems are to do with pollution, which, again, is very hard to see uh, in the ocean because it's all you know dispersed out there. Mm-hmm. It's all going on underneath. Um, and if there's a dragging of these, as, as happens, these great big uh, nets uh, that go drag along the bottom of the seabed, and they will destroy everything in their wake. Can we see them? No, we can't. But that's the equivalent of plowing up the seabed. And um, for, to most people, they will see a boat going up and down, just like many other boats that go up and down. What's the difference? Is yeah. it fishing? Is it trawling, dredging? Or is it just a bunch of sightseers? Um, so it's so much harder to um, to preserve our ocean environment. And then, of course, you've got all the issues of who owns what. Sure. Because uh, we get people, for, you know, fishing boats from all over Europe come and fish our waters, and um, and we go and fish theirs as well. So that's a real minefield. So that's another area that we work in a lot. It, everything that you've said up until this point is about microcosms and macrocosms, smaller aspects of a greater world. Um, the UK within the world of Europe, Devon within the world of the of, of the of the country, that particular bit of gorse land up there within Devon. Everything, like the animal kingdom in general, everything has a reaction that grows and has a bigger and bigger and bigger effect. Yes. It's one of the things I've always liked about the Wildlife Trust is that it's it's one big nationwide network of individual movements all working together for the same goals, which is glorious. If only European politics was leading in that direction at the moment, yeah. if only global politics was moving in a in an environmental wave similar to that, then maybe we wouldn't be facing so many problems as we are facing now. Recently, the, the Wilder Future campaign was launched by the Wildlife Trusts. And the united voice that happened on, on my social media stream, on emails, I was barraged by Wildlife Trusts saying, okay, great, let's get involved. It's nice to see people working in community with each other. Yes. And that happens so incredibly rarely these days. Your passion is obviously undeniable. Where does that come from? Where did you grow up? Where was home originally? Well, I grew. I was born in London, actually, and I spent the first few years of my life in Richmond. And um, one of my earliest memories was watching loads, because the, the river was tidal, still is tidal then. Mm-hmm. One of my earliest memories is watching loads of cars floating up the river, because you occasionally get these exceptional tides, and people would park along the side, sure. ignore the side, saying, don't park here, your <laughs> car might float away, and, and seeing all the cars floating away. So that's that's one wonderful image yeah. I have. Um, I do have some happier ones as well, but that's a great one. I think one. that's pretty uh, happy. It is good, it is good. That's, I'm that's sure that's they've nature got reclaiming cars. the nature, land back, nature reclaiming the roads. guzzling machines. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that would be back in about 1971 or 72. Uh, and then I spent the rest of my childhood in Kent in the Weald. And that's a lovely, but lovely part of the world because it's hilly. It's not, it's not wild like a lot of Devon, but it's, it's very hilly and it feels, uh, because it's so wooded, it's the most wooded part of the UK. It's very sort of cozy feeling. So um, you won't stand up and see for miles and miles and miles. Um, you will see as far as the next wood and you're always sure. going to another little bit of woodland. Um, so you can feel that you, you know, you can be very close to somewhere, but you can feel you're miles and miles away. And uh, we had a place called Bedgebury Forest. It's now a, f- a fantastic area. And uh, we could walk the sort of two or three miles to it, uh, almost all the way through woodland. How old are you at this time? So I started, I moved there when I was five and I lived there till I went off to university. But you could, uh, we could ride there, we could take our cycles there. So uh, never cross a road or anything. So I felt that although it was very populated, the farms all over the place, sure. uh, it, it, I always felt I could go into my sort of my area of complete wilderness. You obviously um, had a den, right? I had lots, lots. <laughs> and every now and again, there would be, you know, the, the, an area of forestry would be cleared and you'd think, oh, damn, I have to get another one somewhere <laughs> else. But the great thing is that it changed all the time and I discovered different bits of, of, of Bedbury Forest and all the woods around. So I, I guess I always had the sense of, of seeking the wild. And then Did your came... parents try and give you that? Was that something that they wanted you to have as a child growing up? Or was it just a byproduct of location? I think it was probably mainly a byproduct of location. I mean, my parents were always very happy they ha- that I had it, uh-huh. but I think a lot of it was probably just something that was that I had inside me. Sure. And I remember from uh, an early childhood, I always wanted to go to places that were slightly bigger and wilder and pointier mountains. So I'd loved our occasional summer trips up to the west coast of Scotland or mm-hmm. to the Alps or somewhere like that. And I get this real, real sense of thrill. I still do now on the rare occasions I managed to get there, but I still feel the sense of thrill of something that is a, you know, a, not just the majesty of the landscape, but the fact that you feel you're going to a completely different world yeah. um, where other people may well be there but the humans suddenly seem to be very very insignificant compared to the grandeur of what you're seeing yeah i i was up helvellyn last week and oh, it's amazing i've been it? up so many times and it never gets dull um and i was talking to my stepfather recently and he was saying he was saying how there are a number of mountains that he's been up a number of times within short succession i think he'd been up skidder twice in two days just because it was so exceptional at the top and there's something about just being a human being with your feet, walking just with your mind and then seeing a world unfold in front of you where you can see a coastline over there, more peaks over there. There was even snow on the top of this mountain the other day in, in April and it was absolutely divine. And then you come back to London and you just go, I think I'm done with city living for a little while. <laughs> But it goes back to that thing of all the different ways you can engage. Um, so let's say I was, I was up on Dartmoor yesterday mm-hmm. and um, running up uh, a tour is a very different experience from walking up a tour. Yeah. Um, and then the sense of, you get a great sense of achievement, I find, when you're at the top, particularly if you're panting hard and you're, you know, your body's working on a slightly different state of, of mind. Um, but if you can stand on top of the hill and you can see a huge landscape and from this part of southern Dartmoor, you can see the coast. There's this great lobe of Devon which sticks down into the English Channel. So sure. you can see coast to the south, to the southwest and the southeast. Um, and that's an extraordinary thing to do and you feel on top of it. But there's a very different way of engaging with the natural environment, I find, which is when it's all around you. So yeah. if you're, if you, it could be that you're in a, in a very tight cluster of peaks somewhere high, but it can also be when you're in a forest, plant collecting in uh, New Guinea, as I did about 25 years ago or so. And there, the forest is really, I mean, it's an incredibly intense experience. It's so loud apart from anything else. It can, I can imagine it could drive you slightly mad. Yeah, yeah. The loudness of all the insects and all the birds. But the forest is, is sort of bearing down on you, these huge trees and the intensity of the green. And you feel, apart from that, you feel some snake would drop on you and swallow you at any moment. Um, more like to be a small creepy crawly actually oh, there. Yeah, but yeah. but it, it's, it's just, there's an incredibly intense feeling. It's like being in a really hot greenhouse where you feel um, you're almost sort of staggering underneath mm-hmm. the weight of it, which is a totally different experience of feeling that you're standing on top of it, looking down and feeling very cool. Were you, almost... were you plant, plant collecting for work? Was that when you were working at Kew? That's one of the Kew Gardens, okay. yes. So, so that, that was, was, yes, t- just over 20 years ago. I hope you're wearing a pith helmet with a huge... <laughs> yes. I know you're a runner and obviously you like running around Dartmoor. If I were to say the Bob Graham round, would that be something you'd be tempted to do? 
Do you know what Bob Graham Rounds is? No, I'm sure I would be tempted, but tell me what it is. Bob Graham Rounds is a 24-hour race up, I think it's 44 peaks in the Lake District. And in terms of feet ascended, you basically go from sea level to the top of Everest over the 24 hours. Gosh. Would that be too much? Um, it'd be too much this afternoon. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tempted to get into training. I've got a friend who's just uh, who ran 145 miles not without stopping, literally without stopping, oh, wow. um, uh, from London to Birmingham across the, the canal, or along the canal rather. Oh. Um, and um, yes, that sounded quite hard work. But yes, 145 the, hours without stopping? Five, five miles, yes, that's, five, right. That's, that's right. That is quite something. Um, I, no, that, that does sound, that sounds very appealing, what you, you just said. You must have gone insane by <laughs> I think you probably have to be insane before you start, to be honest. <laughs> um, so, yes. So, yeah, you grew up in the forest. Then what happened? Where did you go to university? So I went to university up in Durham. And actually, Durham wasn't... Although Durham has some wonderful areas, um, particularly in the in the western side, and in, in the high Pennines, very, very remote. Much, much more remote feeling than anywhere on Dartmoor. Although it is, this is going back 30 years now. Sure. But Durham itself was, I found, quite a difficult area to get out of. Partly I didn't have my own car there. So it was... A, well, that's a small city. It felt much more like living in a city. Yeah. And 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 then um, I've been in London. I was was in London for a while, but just over twenty years ago, we moved out of London. We've gone progressively further southwest and slightly wilder. And now I'm truly lucky because you know I can run out of my house or cycle out of my house, and I can be up on the moor within you know within half an hour, which is which is really stunning. Or half an hour down to the south, and I can be in the sea, which is another completely different kind of wild experience. Do you think to do your job and to respect and to look after Devon? you have to have seen other environments and other ecosystems? I don't think you have to, uh, but I do think it helps. I think, you know, no one goes into this part of this kind of line of work to get rich and famous. You you go into it, um, I think, because you you have a vocation for it. It matters to you. You think sure. it's important. You know, whether your interest is on the business side and how to manage people or whether it's on the, the policy wonk side, which I guess is my background, or whether it's uh, whether you're a naturalist, Sure. Who's, who's learned how to identify all the insects and mollusks and everything else that are out there? Uh, I think you need to have a. You need, it needs to be important for you. I think. Uh, I think a sense of natural justice. Going back to what you were talking about, Chris Packham earlier on, uh, a sense of natural justice. I think is really important because I think you have to be working towards a world where things are fairer for the natural environment, which is being sort of stamped on at the moment by sure. everyone, deliberately sometimes and less deliberately other times but it's still happening but i think that sense of environmental justice is really important so we want to make the world a better place um and that benefits all of us if we can be broad-minded enough and far-sighted enough to see that mm-hmm. obviously it benefits the natural world and the creatures out there but it would make us happier too and if you're not willing to, to if, you, if you don't believe that i don't know how effective you can be in persuading people to do things which aren't immediately obvious so what point did you decide to devote your life to this natural justice? I've always wanted to. There were two things in my life, two, two routes I wanted to go down. Um, one was international development. Mm-hmm. So you know, things like Médecins Sans Frontiers or um, oui. Dogs Without Borders, etc. Um, or, or this line of work. And I've ended up going down this line of work. Interestingly, my, my wife was originally with Save the Children. So okay. that was her interest. We met so she went down that way. She went down that way. She, she moved to Kew Gardens and that's where we met. Okay. But uh, that, that is so something that appeals to me just as much. And through... we, we did indeed. We did indeed. But I think I, I, uh, that sense of, although this is not an, so much an environmental angle to international development i mean there is but it's not quite such a strong uh, one but that sense of justice i think is is really really critical and um so it appeals to me just as much if i had an opportunity at some point in my life to work for msf i may well do so i don't know when but the that's that's the only other thing i think i would really move away from this kind of job to do based on what we talked about last time we we met i guess there's an interesting crossover between what you do with Stephen Wilder Trust and what you may one day do with Medicines for Frontier, working with those human beings in need and working with the wild world. Your son is disabled. Yes, that's right. So he he's autistic and he has uh, various, various other difficulties. Uh, he is very, very happy and he brings an enormous amount of joy to us and it's tremendous being able to spend so much time with him 
and you know it might well be that he always lives with us i don't know we'll have to see i think one one of the things about going down this journey is you never quite know what is going to happen in future mm. and where you're going to end up um and and, and what the next stage is going to be mm. but um one of the things that i've always noticed with him particularly perhaps less so now but particularly when he was younger uh was the importance of the outside sure. so he would love to spend all he went to the spade wanted to spend all his time in water particularly the sea if he had half a chance uh he would we, i remember going to a really freezing cold lake uh, it was about five degrees up in the alps and he was insisting on getting in it was absolutely <laughs> frozen and he did he for a very short time he went bright purple but he did go <laughs> in, he did go and he was absolutely no way he was moving uh, on, until until he got into this lake he was that determined um, and that single-mindedness, I think, is you know it can make life difficult, but it's also there's something really admirable about it. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, Greta Thunberg, who we talked about earlier on, I mean, she's she's got um, Asperger's, she which is a slightly milder version of of of, of what, what my son has got. But the importance of the outside world, I think, in just in regulating him emotionally, he's so much calmer when he's outside. Um, he will do simple things like he likes to pick up the um, you know, to, to pick the um, the remains of last year's umbellifers and snap them and play around with them and throw them off. The bridge into the wind off cliffs or things like that and, mm. and, and see how they they blow around um and um, I, I think when we're in a say a small echoey space like this sure. i think it restricts the way we think it it's you know our, our, the noise of our voice is bouncing back off the walls of us the you know the colors are that that white on that wall to to my right and your left over there is is very strident, particularly if the light's shining on it. These lights, which are off at the moment, but if they're on, there is a very slight flicker because sure. there is to most of these lights. When you're outside, you've got the you've got the wind, you've got the the natural vegetation around you, which are absorbing these sounds. Um, it can be intense in a different way because you've got direct sunlight. Of course, you might have you know the wind being being quite noisy, but it's just it it, it seems to be able to calm people down particularly children suffering from autism in the way that being in an indoor environment does less so at least that was certainly the case for my son so the the importance of the outdoors and we see this uh, reflected in a lot of the education work we do here at Devon Wildlife Trust because that's a big part of our work is working with uh, with school children get them outside get them in a poly tunnel or digging a vegetable patch or mm-hmm. making a fire um, cutting down some scrub planting some trees uh, making the school grounds beautiful and they absolutely love it, and it's amazing how much you can learn that way as well. You can you can learn practical skills, of course. We can learn about teamwork. You can learn about science. Um, so much about English literature is based on inspiration from outside. So don't get huge, on that one. Exactly, huge amount that you can learn from interacting in in the outdoors. Do you think? Do you think that humanity has built too many barriers between us and the natural world? Then, do you think there's an argument for trying to peel them back to stop developing as quickly? or as inconsiderately as we are yes i think and i think it's not so much about the development it's the way we've developed so i think we can bring nature back into our greenhouses etc exactly i think we can bring nature into our homes into our schools bring it into a parliament now why does why why do the houses of parliament need to be so completely dry and brick you know can't can't we make them greener perfectly possible get rid of the green leather and replace it with moss why not? Why not? Exactly. Um, but people, I think, are very outside. You know, if, if, if we're different beings outside, yeah. I think we're different beings sometimes at night time and daytime. I remember Tim Smith, the uh, you know the, the man who set up the Eden Project, mm-hmm. saying uh, we take a lot of our decisions around the dinner table at night because uh, you know nighttime human is different from daytime human. But I think outdoor human is different from indoor human. We think differently. We say things differently. We come to decisions in a different way. Sure. And um, I think we have over-restricted ourselves to our cars and our offices and our sofas in front of the telly mm-hmm. or, or, or the computer screen. And the, I, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things, but it's about balance and it's about recognising how you need to do all these things in different ways. And sometimes, you know, tackling a different problem at work or something, I think, oh gosh, I spent ages and ages at my desk trying to sort it out. I'll go for a run, I'll take a shower, I'll go and do a job outside or something. Mm-hmm. So I think, Oh, it just grabs you like a light bulb moment. I'm sure you have it in your your work as well, all the time. And it's it's just it's that it's as much about variety as anything else. Um, I was very fortunate to spend five hours at four o'clock in the mornings listening to the birds rise in Northumberland uh, last week, and there was something fascinating for the first 
I guess, hour, my mind, whilst we're waiting for the birds to wake up and there's a few owls hooting, whatever, my mind was running through all the things I thought I needed to do, the the tax return I haven't filed, the, whether I <laughs> yes. filled the petrol. That's always on my job list. Always. Um, it's just sitting there, they're literally in my bag right now. But then... After a little while, my mind just stopped and fell in tune with the environment. And it was an incredible morning just spent stopping and being a part of something. One thing I found quite upsetting, though, was I wasn't entirely welcome in the environment because the birds were tweeting loud where the microphones were hidden about 100, 200 metres away. And where we were, they were like, oh, there's, uh, there's some of those noisy bipeds there. We're going to keep away from them. And it's that, I, I worry that we're as humans getting to a point where the natural world won't want us back. It won't have a place for us anymore, that we've evolved ourselves past it into this destructive, smelly world. Well, uh, hopefully that won't happen. I think, <laughs> I think it's more likely to be the case that, uh, that these birds have evolved uh, to observe potential predators and yeah, keep their distance it's not personal um, so I, I wouldn't have thought it was a personal <laughs> thing but um yesterday morning um and we had our toasts and croissants for breakfast and sure. we chuck all the crumbs out uh and and the sparrows have them and now we get this queue of sparrows sort of sitting outside saying come on come on where's the remains of your breakfast we've been here for an hour now yeah. um so that's that turning around the other way so i think we can learn to to cohabit yeah, <laughs> we can learn to go have it with, a, with 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 birds and wildlife again. The, the secret is Maison Fontier and Croissant. It's the it's the other other half of the Devon wildlife. Track. <laughs> yes. Um, no one to, to to go back to your son quickly. Looking at sort of the heritage of things like Temple Grandin, and uh, were there any active things you tried with your son to try and directly help him cope with his uh, autism? That's always a hard one because I guess as a parent, you go through a journey with this. So to start with, you you, know, you, you have a child and you when they're young, they're like every other child. Mm-hmm. And then differences start to emerge and it takes you a while to discover what the differences are. And as you can imagine, like anything, it's, it's, it takes a bit of adjustment to say, okay, we've got a child who's a bit different here. We didn't. We we did know a bit about it, but we didn't know that much about it. So there's a there's a sort of an uh, you know there's a shock period you go through, um, and that can be emotionally quite different, difficult. You then there's a period of trying to persuade other people around you, um, educate them, and inform them. And sometimes we didn't have a particularly easy time with uh, uh, what schools actually went to. Uh, we had a difficult time with our local authority. It suddenly becomes quite political. Ah, oh, you're asking us for money for special education, are you? Um, and that led to quite a long, protracted, um, difficult period with our local authority. And that's very, very common. Um, so all this is sort of interwoven with your day-to-day life of uh, as you see your child uh, develop. And we've had very easy and rewarding times with him. We've had very difficult and challenging times with him. We've had times when he's really wanted other people around him and... Sure. and uh, yeah crave that peer interaction we've had times and that's been incredibly difficult we've ended up being very isolated so I guess we've tried we've had very different experiences um, emotionally in a practical and in a practical sense but also in terms of what we've been trying to adapt to and we often think you know, do, do we really think that 10 years ago you know mm-hmm. was that really what we were dealing with and we have to remind ourselves yes actually actually it was and some things have changed constant have stayed very constant and other things have changed have we but you said you know have we directed them in a particular area I don't think we have. Um, my wife, if she was here, she might disagree with me. I don't, I don't think we have consciously. But I think what we have come to realise is what his particular strengths are. So he's uh-huh. got an amazing chronological mind. So uh, a good example of this, we were my elder boy, my elder son, was 18 last year. And we put together a photo album of him. So I've sat on the floor various evenings surrounded by all these pictures we've got out of old suitcases and stuff thinking oh hell how do I do this you know I can tell he's 18 or 17 here and five here but when was he 11 or 12 or 13 I can't um and uh, my wife said well why don't why don't you get you get another son to to help you and he's got this great mind I thought yes okay so he came in and I picked up this phone and I said when's this and he looked at it and said that was Easter Monday um 2008 how do you know that? He said, well, we were, on this, we were on this bit of the beach here and we went to that cafe afterwards and he just remembered everything. So pretty much any photo I picked up, I mean, the one or two that, that, that puzzled him, uh, but you know, 99.9 times out of 100, mm-hmm. he got it straight away. Uh, and um, that's incredible. 
you know, I've never known anyone else who could do that. Sure. So, and, and, and then, of course, I got halfway through the photograph album and realised I've got nodes of things completely the wrong yeah. order. <laughs> like, uh, but, but, that, but you see, that's an incredible strength. So we think, yeah. well, how, you know, how, can we, how, how can we work with that? And we haven't come to the answer to that yet. Okay. Hopefully we will at some point. Fascinating. Um, so as you know, because I've asked you these three questions before, I ask everyone who comes on the podcast three questions. So um, let's see if you come up with the same ones. And only I will know whether you do or you do not. So the first thing is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? I think I would like to walk up the Aran Valley in the Himalayas. Uh, and this is a valley which leads up to the Makalu, which is... Is it the fifth or sixth? Anyway, it's in the top 10 highest mountains in the world. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very stunning peak. And the Aran Valley has very, very unique um, forests there and botany and wildflowers. So it's one of the most stunning places visually. uh, And it's also one of the most inspiring places in terms of, of the natural environment you have there with all the flowers and animals. Have you been there before? I've been close by, but I've never been there. So I've been I've been up to Everest Base Camp and I've been to the the area around Pokhara, which is uh, further further west in the Himalayas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have never been up that particular valley. How much of your life have you spent adventuring? I you dropped to... in Papua New Guinea. Now we're off in the, uh, the Himalayas. Um, a, a lot of it until we had children, uh-huh. um, and much less since then for obvious reasons. I would love to do more later in life if we ever get the chance to do it. I think I'm more aware now of the impact that we have just by going to places Mm -hmm. and so many places I've been to which are now massively changed, not always for the worse, but they are massively changed. Um, And just by, you know, however green you attempt to be, just by going to a place you do change things. So in some ways, I don't think it's a bad thing that we that we travel less. And I've been trying to get to know my own country much more because sure. I hardly ever travelled around in my own country before. I always went abroad, so uh-huh. I've been getting to know the, the UK. Maybe maybe Europe next, um, but no tra- traveling and adventuring. Um, I love, and I would love a chance to do more of that. I have no agenda in asking this question, but would you? Because people go either way. Would you want to go on your own, or would you want to take your family with you? And my honest answer is, I think I would like to do a bit of both. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's all it, the the advantage of going on your own is that you can do exactly what you want. You can meet people or not people, or not meet people. You can look to look to the left and say, "I like fancy going in that direction." It might be a big risk, but I'm going to take that risk anyway. There's sure. only me to worry about. But equally, it is always more thrilling, more rewarding if you share these experiences with other people, particularly if they're people close to you who you love. Yeah, I uh, my recent trip up um, Helvellyn. As I said, it was a repeat one for me, but I took some off for the first time. And it's that great thing about sharing not only the view and the environment and giving them a first-hand phenomenological experience, but also to share those encounters that you've had up there on your own. I've been yes. up there in wind and rain all over the place, and you can say, well, it's lovely today and the sun's great, but sometimes it's really horrible and you're lucky <laughs> yes. to be alive. The second question which I'm going to alter slightly, should we colonise the seas? Goodness. Um, I don't have a difficulty with us colonising the seas as long as we did it in a way that helped improve the seas rather than just pollute them. Mm-hmm. So if you go to your classic sort of, I can't think of the name of a film now, but there have been various films about people living out in the seas. Jaws they, 3D. Yeah, oh, sure. that one. <laughs> I haven't watched that one. So, but, but, but they're inevitably dystopian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we think about the way we treat the seas now, whether it's plastic or pollution mm-hmm. or overfishing or all these things. So if it means all, you know, dredging the, the, the seabed for by the manganese nodules or whatever we might want to do. Um, but if it, if it just means, yes, we need to extend our influence to the seas, then I'm not for it at all. Uh-huh. I think we should, we should stop doing it. But I think if it means that we come to live more in tune with our seas... So that we, you know, we don't regard it as that big blue wobbly thing out there, as Baldrick from Blackadder said. You know, the dangerous thing which occasionally comes in and floods us, and we go out there and grab whatever fish we can. We've got a chance to do so, and just you know, explore around the edges with surfers or whatever. If it meant we properly engage with it, I think that could be really exciting. 
I still would like to see areas of the sea which are treated as total wilderness. Well, we have protection areas in place We now. do. We do. Not, not very much around the UK, sadly. We've got plenty of designations and we're pushing for the marine conservation zones. A number of them we hope to get in around the coast of Devon and Cornwall um, this year. Um, and we've got some already in place. But I'm talking much larger areas, like around Pitcairn, like around Easter Island. like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the, talking about potentially... Uh, hundreds of thousands, even millions of, of square kilometres. Sure. Very, very large areas, which we can say, no, we want this to be pristine. Um, and I think if if part of our colonisation of the ocean said, okay, well, these are the bits we're going to live in, these are the bits we're going to have an impact on, because you, you can't avoid having an impact on these humans, mm-hmm. and these are the bits we're going to live well, well alone, as opposed to sort of just dumping stuff there, which is sure. what we do now, um, then it could be positive. I also think it might bring out a very different side of humanity we talked a minute ago about we're different at night than we are in day mm-hmm. we're, we're different, different under the seas than we are above the seas well, exactly yes we're different up a mountain than in an office so if we lived under the seas or or out on you know on floating pods or something somewhere on the floating cities we might be very very different humans do you think that uh, one, one of the things i've recently encountered i I was a eco-tourist to the Maldives, if you will, which is a bad thing carbon-wise, but the realisation was that that relationship between tourism and environmental research, one funds the other, yes. blah, blah, everything sort of pulls up. But most of the infrastructure there was fueled by diesel engines, which isn't particularly green. Not ideal. Um, and the hope is that some way to have offshore... Uh, solar farms or wave farms with battery support which will then transport the energy back to shore we can't be done with cables for fairly obvious reasons do you think that floating cities with that kind of ability to create energy is a conceivable possible future as we're in the world of colonizing the seas anyway let's go into full sci-fi mode. Oh, oh i think it's i think it's certainly possible um we've got we know how to build wind turbines out at sea we're doing them all the time mm-hmm. uh there's wave harnessing technology as well these sort of floating sausages uh there's tidal all right t- t- tides aren't such an issue if you're living in the middle of or such an opportunity if you live in the middle of an ocean yeah. but if you live close to the coast they, they they can be um and soda of course as well so all these things are possible i think the question is you know how do you do it in a way that has an impact and it always will have an impact this yeah. is the thing i think we you know as as wildlife trust we live in this in a pragmatic zone and saying all right we accept that people out there want to grow food catch fish have houses to live in and do stuff travel around in their cars We've got to find a way that that can interact constructively with wildlife rather than say, we don't want any of that here. Um, I'm a great fan of rewilding all these things, but I think you can't do that everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you, and even that's not easy. This is easy. It's easier to talk about as a, a lovely abstract concept than it is to do it in practice. So I think we live in a pragmatic world. So let's try and design, uh, if we were going to colonize the seas, let's try and design something that is entirely self-sufficient. Um, and creates its own energy and its own food um, and deals with its own waste but has minimum impact on the natural environment around it. There was a a biosphere built in the Utah desert, I think it was in the 90s, which was was a first attempt to make a self-sustainable... They called it Biosphere 2. Oh, yes. The first biosphere being the Earth, and they were trying to make it, and it didn't quite work. There were leaks, which they weren't anticipating, and I think they had to... A small amount of input from the outside world to keep it going, but they had a, a miniature coral reef and a little miniature rainforest and a certain amount of, of goats and things wandering around trying to make this thing 100% self sustainable. Uh, the reality of it was was nigh on impossible. But there's a very good book about that, which uh, we've already gone so far off the topic. We've already been <laughs> yeah. We're not trying to make Devon a, a biosphere three. Um, third question if you could bring back any species from extinction. What would it be? Gosh. Um, well, I think two answers to that, okay. if I may. So my first answer, this is the the, the little boy in me, mm-hmm. would love to go back to some point in the Cretaceous or Jurassic and see uh, one or more of the big beasts. So if it's Cretaceous, it would have to be the Tyrannosaurus rex. If it was the Jurassic, it would have to be one of the big sauropods, you know, the, the ones that were like Diplodocus, mm-hmm. because they're just such extraordinary animals. And there are some amazing marine beasts, which are less well talked about around that time, like Lyopleurodon, the biggest predator ever to inhabit the Earth, 150-ton thing. Um, Your face is just lit up. I know, really I like know. a child. <laughs> well, there you are. Yes, you see the little boy. I mean, <laughs> seldom far from the surface. Um, the other part of me, and this doesn't exactly answer 
the question about species, um, or perhaps it's more than one species. But the other part of me would love to go back to, say, um, Paleolithic times in the UK. So um, when the, the UK is positioned roughly where it is mm-hmm. here, um, and humans are around, but they haven't started having a major impact yet. Sure. So we're still mainly forested. You've got still the big beasts, the bears, the wild boar, the auroch, um, and perhaps some, you know, some cats, some other species, which we're, we're not so well, well aware of now. But see what it was actually like then. You know, what would our rivers look like? What would have southeast England, what would have London looked like? Uh-huh. You know, the space currently occupied by London. Um, were the highlands actually covered by forest or were they not? Um, what would it have been like to walk down the, the River Severn or, or stand on the top of Exmoor and look across the Bristol Channel? You know, how, how would things be, be different from they are now? And I think that would be, it'd be fascinating, but also it'd be incredibly instructive for the things we're trying to solve today. That's a brilliant answer. I should uh, make a hash of every first interview I do and insist I come back to all my guests in the second <laughs> time. Um, Harry, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. Thank again. you. Thank <laughs> you. It's my pleasure. This is the part of the podcast when I lavish thanks and praise upon my guests. And this week I'll have to add apologies to the mix, so thanks Harry for letting me come back and interview you for a second time. The Devon Wildlife Trust is campaigning for stronger laws to protect our natural environment and start bringing wildlife back. And you can find out more about the work Devon Wildlife Trust is doing to create this wilder future where nature and humans can both thrive at www.devonwildlifetrust.org. And as an extra bonus, if you head over to our website at treesacrowd.fm, you can hear a clip of Harry and I walking along the banks of the River Otter in search of Devon's very own beaver population. You'd be damned foolish to miss it. Here's a clip and see you next time. Bye. So this is the beautiful River Otter Valley uh, in East Devon. So you can see hills all around us and it's very, very green, very lush countryside. Um, quite intensively farmed but a lot of wildlife and of course this beautiful river now we're standing on the edge a tributary of the river and what you can see here um, is a dam which I suppose is about three foot in height Um, and you see that how much higher the water level is behind and that's backed up through all the 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 back channels behind us compared to downstream Uh, and the result of this this is the result of this dam that uh, the beaver has built And one of the striking things about the beavers is the way they modify the environment around them. So they don't eat fish. That's an important thing to get right. Um, Most of their diet is actually just based on plant material. But they will fell particularly small willows um, and they will strip the bark off them and help feed off them in the winter. And the sound of flowing water causes them stress. Really? Uh, So, yes, it does. Is that Um, why they make the dams? It is. They make the dams. (laughs) So if they they hear flowing water, they will try um, and repair the dam. You can see this from here someone has removed some of the material from the dam because presumably because the dam got a bit too big it was being problematic sure. um, but in no time at all the beaver has started to build it back right, up yeah. again oh the oak and the ivy 